So we just finished a five-week series entitled, It's Only God. And throughout the series, I gave a warning in relation to God's goodness. This is the piece I kept saying. When people have repeatedly experienced God's presence, and we have repeatedly seen God's activity, and we have repeatedly enjoyed God's favor, we can get used to the activity of God and start to take it for granted. We just presume that God will always do what he's always done. And there's something in scripture that we kept going back to multiple different places in that series, and that is letting people see that scripture shows God's activity in the past does not guarantee God's favor in the future. In fact, it, it might sound strange to even say it, but did you know you can start to presume upon the activity of God just by reading stories in the Gospels alone? Let, let's kind of put a couple of these together. You'll see what I'm talking about in just a moment. For example, when Jesus met the demoniacs in the tombs, these guys were demon-possessed, they were cutting themselves, and they were screaming night and day. When Jesus left those men, they were calm, and they were clothed, and they were in their right minds. When Jesus met Martha on the road to Bethany, her brother Lazarus had just died. He'd been in the tomb for four days. When Jesus left Martha, Lazarus was alive, he was reunited with his family, and he was doing well. When Jesus met Zacchaeus, he was a tax collector with unethical practices. When Jesus left Zacchaeus, he was willing to give half of everything he owned to the poor, and he was willing to give back four times anything he defrauded from anyone. And you just find story after story after story after story like that all throughout the gospel. And you begin to look and say, if Jesus is anywhere in the mix, things are going to end well. We, we almost might have this, this spiritual formula in our mind, and that is difficult circumstances plus the presence of Jesus is going to equal a happy ending on the other side. It's like we just keep finding story after story exactly like that. And there's something that we really like about those stories. There's a peacefulness in knowing that if Jesus is, is in the mix, if Jesus is among the people, then he is going to bring about some type of change that will bring safety and settledness and everybody walks away with a wonderful ending. And then we roll up into Mark chapter 10. In Mark chapter 10, there's a story of a young wealthy man who drops at Jesus' feet. And he asks the question, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now let's just say that is the evangelist dream scenario. For somebody who has spent years going out and sharing the gospel and praying for people and presenting the truths of Jesus' claims and inviting people to come to faith and maybe passing out gospel tracts, they get to a story like this and they're like, I know how this is going to end. Like, God is going to save that man. He's, he is the right man at the right place with the right question in front of the right person. He's going to get saved. Listen, there it is. We presume we know how that story is going to end. 
And then all of a sudden you read what it says in verse 22. And we're going to be in the text in a moment, but here's what it says. But at these words, he, speaking of this young man, was saddened and went away grieving. Did you know that is the only story in your Bible of someone dropping to the feet of Jesus, falling at his feet, and walking away in a worse condition than when he arrived? It's shocking. You read it and you're like, maybe he just didn't understand what Jesus was saying. The reality is I think he understood better than most of us what Jesus was saying. When you read this, it's like, but it didn't follow the formula. Like, he, he didn't stick with the script. It's supposed to be difficult circumstances plus the presence of Jesus is going to equal a happy ending. And that's not what happens. There's no part in Scripture that says this young man came back and said, I was mistaken. I, I really am willing to give up everything in order to follow you. But it takes stories like this to help us see a bigger truth in relation to what it looks like to follow Jesus. This is your big truth for this morning. Things don't change because Jesus is in the mix. Things change because Jesus has become the master. Let me, let me say that in a different way. Things don't change because somebody has been to church. Things don't change because they can quote some Bible verses. Things don't change because they've been baptized. Things don't change because they said a prayer 10 years ago. Things don't change because somebody has a lot of excitement in a moment. Things change when Jesus becomes Lord and master of a person's life. I want us to explore what that looks like this morning. I invite you to go with me in your Bibles. Mark's gospel chapter number 10. We're going to be in verses 17 through 22. I am speaking this morning on the topic, I surrender all. I surrender all. Now, if you've been around church life for any period of time, chances are you know there is a really famous invitation hymn that is entitled, I Surrender All. And it's a song that it reminds people to give everything to God, to be willing to forsake anything in order to follow Christ, to live your life with your yes constantly on the table. And it's one of those things that you can sing, I surrender all. You can pray, I surrender all. You might even have the intentions, I surrender all. But our intentions of I surrender all are often met with our actions of, actually, Jesus, I'll just surrender some. Deep surrender only happens as we abide in Christ, submitting to his lordship, and learning to trust him as master every day. Today, we're going to see what interferes with a person being able to fully follow Christ at all levels. I invite you right now, let's look at what the text says over in Mark chapter 10, starting in verse number 17. As he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. For you know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, I have kept all these things from my youth up. Looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him and said to him, 
one thing you lack. Go and sell all you possess and give to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. And at these words, he was saddened and he went away grieving for he was one who owned much property. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, may you walk us gently through your word this morning. May your spirit point out areas in our life that, that we've not fully surrendered, areas that we have not fully placed before you, anything that would hold us back from fully, faithfully following you. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Contrast is one of the great teachers. So if you were to have read the verses that preceded this, verses 13 through 16, you would find a contrasting story where Mark is sharing qualities about the kingdom of God. And in that contrasting story, you find that there were people who were coming to Jesus with their young children, and they were asking Jesus to bless their children. Disciples maybe thought that these people were annoying Jesus. They're trying to push these people away. Jesus very quickly corrects the disciples, and he says, let the children come, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. And it's in his reply that he points out qualities of those who enter the kingdom, and here it is, and qualities of those who embrace kingdom living. And he points back and he says, these are qualities you can see in children. Now, now there's at least two of these qualities that would absolutely stand out within that culture. The first is children lack power. Uh, that is, in that culture, kids had no power. They had no rights apart from what came through their family. They could demand nothing. They could challenge nothing. They could change nothing. And when someone comes to God, listen, they have no power. They have no rights. They can make no demands. They cannot negotiate a spiritual contract. They either come on God's terms or they do not come at all. Second, children are dependent. The term that Jesus used of children in verse 14 refers to either unborn babies, infants, or newborns. In other words, when these parents were coming, it might have even been they were saying, would you bless the child who I'm going to have in the future? Or would you bless my infant? Would you bless my baby? And that's a very specific use of words right there. At that stage, a child needs someone to feed them, change them, protect them, provide for them, guide them. They are completely dependent on someone else. When we come to God, we are completely dependent upon God's grace. We need God to change us. We need God to guide us. We need God to protect us. We need God to feed and to provide for us. Now, put those two pieces together. For those who enter the kingdom of God are going to be those who are powerless and those who are dependent. By way of contrast, the very next story is a man who comes who is powerful and he is independent. He is the exact opposite of the children a moment ago. He wants eternal life, but he wants eternal life on his terms. 
Each of the gospel writers share in this particular story, they tell us a little bit more about this particular man. For example, Matthew tells us he's a young man. Uh, Luke calls him a certain ruler. That was a title that was either given to the chief of the synagogue or a respected member of the Sanhedrin. Either way you look at it, it was a position that came with a lot of power. Uh, In the text itself, it tells us this man is wealthy. He's a man who owned a lot of property. He is literally exactly the opposite of what it looks like to come as a little child. Now remember what Jesus says in verse 15. Truly I say to you, Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. So how did this man come before Jesus? He came the exact opposite of a little child. This is important. He wants to negotiate eternal life. He begins with the phrase, what must I do to inherit it? is though somehow eternal life is within his power and his grasp. He he thinks that something that he could do, his actions are going to help. But if you'll remember, if you understand the gospel, it is our actions, our sin, our rebellion that led to separation with God to begin with. It's not anything that you and I can do. So Jesus begins to walk him down that path, and he says, These are the commandments that have been given, and he lists them in verse number 19. He says, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness. He he keeps going, and the man says, I've kept all of those since my youth. He's excited. He's like, I'm on the right path. And then Jesus switches gears in verse 21 and says, sell all you possess and give to the poor. Then come and follow me. And when he heard the cost, he walked away grieving. The price was more than he was willing to pay. He was willing to surrender some. He just wasn't willing to surrender all. He didn't see himself as spiritually desperate and without the ability to make demands and unable to come to God apart from God's grace. He wants Jesus, but he wants Jesus on his own terms. And Jesus already said in verse 15, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. So based on verse 15, we should not be surprised with his response in verse number 22. And yet we are. We're still surprised. And I think that's an important thing. Sometimes we need a real life example in order to allow a difficult spiritual concept to sink in. Because it's one thing for Jesus to say, unless somebody receives the kingdom like a child, they can't enter. They're like, yeah, wonderful. Amen. Let's do that. And then the next guy comes and he's respectable. And the guy comes and he's wealthy and the guy is at Jesus's feet. I mean, he kneels in the right way. He asks what is easily the, the most important question somebody could ever ask. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And in our mind, we're like, Jesus, isn't that enough? Hey, here's one. Why didn't Jesus say, hey, come on, come back. Let me talk to you a little bit more. Maybe you misunderstood what I said. Why didn't Jesus keep chasing after him? The issue is, The man fully understood what Jesus said. To follow Jesus is not Jesus being an addition to our life. To follow Jesus means we lay our life down before him and he fully lives his life through us. 
It's a different story. That, that's not what religion teaches. Religion says the right person, the right place, the right sincerity, the right question, and the, and the right person, all of those things should add up to isn't it enough? And the issue is not isn't it enough by the world's standards or by religion standards, by God's standards, this man is still a sinner in need of a savior. The text is one of those that stops us and causes us to have to think, God, what are you asking of me right now that I've not been willing to surrender to you? Are there areas in my life that are holding me back from fully following? So I'm gonna walk through three pieces here and we're gonna walk through it both as those who might not know Jesus as Lord and Savior. There's application to those people. And we're going to walk through it from those who know Jesus as Lord and Savior. And yet they're still trying to hold on to parts of their life and say, God, I'm willing to give you in general terms everything, but you keep asking for this and I'm not okay with that yet. Notice how it applies to both groups. So what hinders people from fully following Jesus? First, we emphasize passion over truly following Jesus. We live in a culture that values passion. Uh, we value passion when it comes to relationships, to careers, when it comes to sports. We equate passion with deep conviction. Uh, kind of the idea of if somebody is passionate, then they really believe it. They truly believe it. Like they, they, they're all in. If if somebody doesn't lack or have that passion, maybe they're calmer, they're quieter, they're a little ho-hum in their approach. We're like, that person doesn't have deep conviction. Okay, we take that same idea of passion and we bring it into the spiritual realm as well. People who cry during a worship service, people who amen during a message. By the way, I enjoy that, no problem there. People who raise hands in worship. Here's what we many times think. We think that person has deeper passion and commitment than somebody else. We equate passion with depth of commitment. Unfortunately, we focus so much on what we see on the outside that we're not asking the question, is the person truly following Jesus? Now notice how this man came. He came running. He knelt at Jesus' feet. He respectfully says, good teacher. He asked this important question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? There is something unbelievably powerful about seeing this young, wealthy aristocrat throw himself basically at the feet of Jesus, a, a man who was well on his way to become a criminal in the eyes of the people around him throw himself at the feet of Jesus and say, what must I do to inherit eternal life? It screams passion. But passion and truly following are not the same. The question is not how excited can you get. It's how close will you follow. You got to hear me on this next one. This is going to be hard. If we mistake passion for following, then we have to become accustomed to people shouting like a saint on Sunday and living like the devil on Tuesday. Passion and truly following are not the same thing. 
The first words out of Jesus' mouth were not, thank you for your passion. His first words were, why do you call me good? He challenges the man's initial premise. He says, there's no one good except God. And it's within his challenge that he's clarifying some things. If the man, if the man called him good because he believed that Jesus was God, then the next question will be, will you follow me as God? If the man is calling him good because he thinks respect or flattery is what takes to get into the kingdom, he's like, we need to stop that right now. He challenges his initial premise. Saying the right thing is not the same as doing what is right. There are many non-Christians who have great things to say about Jesus. They love his teachings. They think much of his example. They admire his leadership. But when they hear Jesus say, come repent, die to self to follow, Humble yourself before me. Forsake all for the gospel. They're not willing to do that. Now, for the Christian, there's at least been a time, and that this is a true Christian, a born-again believer, not just a Christian by name only. For someone who is genuinely a believer, there has been a time in that person's life where they have heard the call of God to come and repent. And as best they knew how, by the leading of the Spirit of God, they have repented of their sin before a holy God and they have, have placed faith in what Jesus has done for them. That has happened in that person's life. But here's the thing, even though that happens at a moment of salvation, it doesn't mean the believer lives in a state of constant repentance, of constant willingness, of, of constant desire for God to fully live through their life. Sometimes our intentions exceed our actions. Sometimes our mouth moves faster than our obedience. It's easy to say, I love God. I want to grow in a relationship with God. And I want a strong prayer life. Easy to say it. The question is, are we willing to act upon what we say we want? Because intimacy with God is not accomplished by passionate speech. It's accomplished by spending time with God daily where the focus is on him. A growing relationship with God doesn't come because we passionately declare, I want to grow in relationship with God. A growing relationship with God comes because we're willing to obediently follow and faithfully follow Jesus through the ups and the downs of life. A vibrant prayer life does not come by quoting somebody else on prayer. Do you know how a vibrant prayer life comes? Praying, that's it. As Christians, we can talk a lot about the disciplines, talk a lot about our intentions, talk a lot about our sacrifice, but when the rubber meets the road, the issue is, are we walking it out? Are we living it out? Is there a difference between a passionate conversation versus somebody saying, I'm willing to do whatever it is Jesus is calling me to do? Faithfully following Jesus requires more than passion, more than talk, and more than excitement. It requires action, it requires obedience, it requires follow through. Things don't change because Jesus is in the mix. They change because Jesus has become the master. So what else hinders people from fully following Jesus? The next one is we take pride in what we're not instead of being broken over what we could be. 
After Jesus confronts this man on the issue of goodness, he then shares some of the commands of Moses. It says over in verse 19, uh, you know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. Now, these are commandments that address encounters with other people. Uh, it was considered to be the basis of a respectable life. And without hesitation, the man says, I've kept all of those since I was young. With the exception of one of these, all of those were negative commands. It's all do not, do not, do not, do not. And the very last one is, and honor your father and mother. Now, here's basically what the man is saying. I haven't done anything to hurt anyone. So then Jesus flips the script. He says, sell everything you have and give to the poor. Because it's one thing to say, I haven't done anything to hurt anyone. But the opposite side of the same coin is, well, have you done anything to help anyone? With all of your money, with all of your possessions, with your, your position of power, what have you done to help anyone? When Jesus turns the conversation from what he didn't do to what he should do, the man then walks away. It points out another obstacle in fully following Jesus. Righteous living is about more than avoiding certain sins. It's also about doing what God tells us to do. Now, this man was proud of the fact that he wasn't a murderer, an adulterer, a thief, a liar, a cheat, or disrespectful to his parents. Hey, let's be honest. It's good he wasn't involved in those things. But is that where we're going to end it? Is, is that what it means for somebody to be completely righteous? Following Jesus is never going to lead us to pridefully say, well, at least I'm not any of that it will lead us to humbly say, but by the grace of God, there go I. What hinders people from fully following Jesus? We emphasize passion over truly following him. We take pride in what we're not instead of being broken over what we could be. And here's number three. We try to follow Jesus while clinging to greater desires. Now in verses 21 and 22, it tells us something very important about this young man. It tells us that while he wanted eternal life, he wanted his riches and his property even more. We understand that because when Jesus told the man to sell all he has and give to the poor, the man went away grieving because he owned a lot of property. Now again, we gotta be careful in these moments. Let's not get judgmental on this guy. If Jesus gave you the same proposition right now, how would you respond? If Jesus said, today, sell your house and come and follow me. If Jesus said right now, take what you've been saving for that vacation next year, and I want you to give it to this cause. Would you say, hmm, I can't do that. If Jesus were to say right now, I want you to swallow your pride, deal with this before me, and go get things right with that person that you've been at odds with. Would you say, hey, Jesus, I'll follow you on everything else, but I can't do that. You see, this, this same passage applies 
in so many different areas. We, it's easy for us to look at that and say, well, this man, he, he wasn't willing to forsake it all. He wasn't willing to do it. Like, I've done that. I've followed Jesus. This is, this is not my issue. And the reality of it is we all still battle with these same types of things. The wording here of Mark is so important. The word translated as grieved, it's the picture of storm clouds gathering. As Warren Wearsby said, he walked out of the sunshine and into the storm. Jesus is not saying giving away everything is the requirement of eternal life. We know that because the rest of Scripture does not say the same thing. Here's what he is saying. The focus is not on how you can become poor. The focus is on whether or not you will do what's necessary to follow me. Discipleship is costly. Discipleship requires sacrifice. Discipleship is going to involve obedience. It's going to question who has our allegiance and what is our ultimate desire. In other words, at the end of the day, if the question becomes between Jesus saying, I want you to do this, and you say, but I really want to do something else, who's going to win in that moment? And that's what he's leading this man up to, to follow him is to simply say, God, I'm willing. It's, it's yours. And here's the thing that we recognize. As followers of Christ, there's areas that at one point in your life, you've submitted as best you know how. And then you get further in your walk with God and he'll say, actually, you submitted as much as you could understand at that moment. But now I'm calling you to submit more question is, will we submit then? This is a ongoing walk with our master. And whenever you get into that moment, the question is not, what's it going to cost? The question is, who are you following? Because if he's saying, this is what I'm asking you to do, that's who we're following. At the end of the day, it's going to be worth it. Uh, we understand that Jesus has clearly told us in Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, that we can only have one master. He says, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money, or God and wealth. And that's just one example. We, we can't serve God in any number of other things. At the end of the day, we can only have one master. So for the Christian, maybe you've been in a place you're plateaued in your spiritual life, or maybe you feel you're declining in your spiritual life, or you just know you're not growing anymore. It's really helpful to ask the question, is there anything in my life right now that I want more than my walk with Jesus? Anything. If the answer is yes, then you might have pinpointed a piece that is hindering your walk with Christ. So let me just pull out some really good things that can get to a position that it's out of balance in our walk with the Lord. Did you know our desire for family can eclipse our desire to follow Jesus? Let me ask you, if Jesus were to call you right now to a mission field somewhere around the world, if Jesus right now were to say, I want you to be a part of a church plant in L.A., and you're like, I can't because my family is here. You know what just happened? You said, Lord, I'll go with you this far 
as long as you're not asking me to give up family. Did you know our love for the church, serving in the church, and being used in the church can get in the way of our calling to be intimate with Christ? Did you know you can become addicted to serving? Because when you're serving, people come up and say, good job. You did great. I appreciate you using your gifts. I've never had anybody come up to me and say, Paul, that was a good quiet time you had this morning. Because it wasn't between me and anybody else. It was between myself and the Lord. But here's the thing. When he keeps calling us to intimacy with him and we say, Lord, not now. I'm too busy doing this. You just placed that over top of obedience to Christ in that moment. And how are we going to have anything to give? How are we going to have anything to serve with if we're doing it in our own strength? It has to be that our primary calling is always intimacy with God and ministry is what God does out of the overflow of intimacy. And the moment we reverse those two things, we're trying to do in our strength for our glory many times what God never called us to do. And it's in those moments of sitting alone with God that he challenges even the motivations of our heart. Here's another one. Pursuing our own dreams and plans can challenge Jesus' rightful position in our life. You all know I, I do a lot of confessing when I'm preaching. And so when I've confessed over the years, I love goals. I love plans. I love to-do lists. I, those things make me happy. I, I am that person who, even if it wasn't on my to-do list, I will do it, put it on my to-do list in order to check it right back off of my to-do list because I like the feeling of I just got something accomplished. But you know what God keeps messing me up with? When I got a list like 50 pieces long and he's like, put that aside, I want you to do this. Put that aside, I want you to call this person. That's not your biggest focus right now. Here's what I'm leading you to do. And I want to fight with God about it. I'm like, God, can we get to that this afternoon? And here's what I'm doing. I'm trying to negotiate obedience. Delayed obedience is disobedience. Here's another one. Chasing after recreation, successful careers, and worldly possessions can challenge Jesus' rightful place in our life. There is nothing wrong with finding time to rest. In fact, everything I can read in Scripture talks about the importance of sabbatical, the importance of pulling away and taking time to rest. But sometimes we can make our rest our ultimate goal, and we're like, I'll try to work Jesus in on the fringes of my recreational plans. It's possible to desire God's blessings more than we desire him himself. Would you want to follow him as closely if he were to say, for the next month, I'm going to withdraw my protection, I'm going to withdraw my blessings, I'm going to withdraw my favor, I'm going to withdraw these other things from your life. Would our desire still be, God, I just want to be with you? Or do we find that we chase after him in proportion to the blessings that he's giving. Is Jesus your ultimate desire 
Does he have your ultimate allegiance? Or is there something else that is capturing your heart? When something or someone takes that rightful position in your life, it will hinder us from fully following Christ. So as we close out, just know this story just brings out a few pieces. But here they are again. When we emphasize passion over truly following, we can make the mistake of intention and excitement being more important than action and follow through. We take pride in what we're not instead of being broken over by what we could be. In that situation, we're trying to measure our progress against the wrong standard, and it leads to pride instead of humility. When we try to follow Jesus while clinging to something we want more, that thing is taking his rightful place in our life. So let me just ask as you just kind of process everything I've said. I I know this is not a fun message, but let me just ask you this. Is there anything even in this message right now that God has been bringing to mind that in your mind you know without a doubt he's saying, this is the peace I'm asking from for you right now? For this man, it was an issue of wealth, whether or not he'd be willing to lay down his wealth to follow Christ. And by the way, here's what I've seen. If God calls you to lay anything down, your life is always better afterwards than if you tried to hold on to it. And sometimes, even when he says, would you be willing to give me this? It's kind of your ram in the thicket scenario. He's wanting to find out or help you find out what are you willing to hold back in order to follow him? So is there a relationship in your life that's been crumbling that he's been saying, go get it right, and you say, God, I'll follow you this far, but not there. Is there an area of service he's been calling you to? You know he's gifted you. You know he keeps burdening you. You see a need that other people are not seeing, and yet you keep saying, God, when things slow down, I'll be willing to follow you. Is there an area of giving that maybe he's prompted you to give, and you just keep making excuses and say, God, I hear you, but I'm saving that for this. If there's any area, sin, attitude, perspective, goal, dream, desire, that you're saying, I'll go with you this far, but not the rest of the way, that's a piece he's calling you to lay down. I'm going to ask you if you would, bow with me for just a moment. Heads bowed, eyes closed. There's going to be some people in the room right now who the first piece for them is not laying down areas of life as a believer, but God's been calling you to himself. And you keep saying, I can't get over what happened in my past. I can't get over the fact that God didn't answer a prayer the way I thought he should. I can't get over what happened in this church or I can't get past something there. And that thing has now become the stumbling block for moving forward. I want to encourage you, surrender everything before him. There's going to be pastors that will be down front. Some of the pastor's wives, there'll be some of our counselors also at the front. Our band is already coming forward at this time. We're going to enter into 
this old hymn, this old invitation song, I Surrender All. It's one that we've heard many times before, but I pray today that when we sing the lyrics, that it would be like we're singing it for the first time. It might be today that there's people in the room that you've been a follower of Christ for a long time. And you recognize there's a peace, there's a room in your heart, there's a part of your life that you've just, you've recognized more and more that has not been fully surrendered. You surrendered it as much as you understood at the moment, but God continues to draw you closer. And as he does, there's greater and greater awareness of things that have not been submitted to his lordship. Whatever that might be, let me just say, surrender all to him. Because life is always better in obedience with our master. Things don't change because Jesus is just in the mix. They change because he's become the master. So we're going to have a final word of prayer. There'll be an invitation song. And then I'm going to invite people to respond as the spirit of God prompts them. Heavenly Father, would you do your work in our hearts God, help us not to worry about everybody else around us or worry about what people think. But Lord, if there are areas that you have been prompting us on, would today be the day that we surrender all before you? Well, thank you for what you do. In Jesus' name, amen.